This morning, I would invite you to turn in your Bible with me on your device, or if you have a hard copy like me um, here. Uh, my wife pulled out an old book yesterday we found called uh, The Psalmody. It was from 1850-something, and all it was was songs that were written off of the Psalms. It was pretty amazing, actually, in 1850, and I'm thinking, wow, that's, a, that's an old book. It's a little older than me. That's an old book. And I realized that how often do we not have old books in front of us, right? So, but if you have it, the oldest of books on, uh, on your device, turn there. If you have it in hard copy, please turn there. It's going to be very helpful for you to have John chapter 4 in front of you um, to help navigate this incredible story. We do ourselves a disservice when we read the Bible without imagination. When we come to the Scripture and we just read it as a document. Because the truth is, the Bible is God's story to us. And it's filled with stories of God's story and His encounters with people. Have you ever had one of those situations where you just had to be somewhere? You had to be there. You had to get there where you just knew that beyond a shot of a doubt, the one thing you had to do was you had to get there, right? I was two hours away from San Francisco when Kathleen went into labor with Mary-Kate. I was going back to the Navy base. I got on the phone with her, and I knew one thing. It was either Southern California Navy base or Children's Hospital San Francisco. I knew where I had to be, and I drove in a very unchristian manner to Children's Hospital in San Francisco so fast. Remember the old, some of you may remember the old Streets of San Francisco show, you know, where they're going over the bumps, bam, bam, bam. Well, imagine that in a Volkswagen going through San Francisco, and an orange Volkswagen at that, and you, you get the idea, because I, I had to be there. I had to be there. In John chapter 4, verse 4, we read these words. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's not an accident. Beginning with those words, we enter into the single longest conversation that Jesus ever has in the Gospel of John, which is found in one of the most intimate encounters that Jesus has. And what we discover is nothing about this is accidental and nothing about this is incidental. It is deliberate and it is purposeful because Jesus had to go through Samaria. The word had there suggests divine necessity. We all have those times, like I mentioned, where we just had to get somewhere. God had to get to Samaria. Passage is long this morning. Takes up the first 42 verses of John chapter 4. So I would invite you to take the time and 
drink that in at another time. We're going to look at different parts of it, but that's why it's good to maybe have it right in front of you. But you may know the main characters of this story. Jesus is front and center from beginning to end of this entire story. The disciples make their appearance, and they're kind of in and out of the story. But then we also have the one person we know as the Samaritan woman. And when we say the Samaritan woman, all kinds of ideas come to our heads. If you have read the Bible for any length of time, if you're familiar with the story at all, you've probably heard it misinterpreted and misspoken in many ways, especially when it comes to this woman. She, in some ways, steals the show. So let's talk about her for a moment. This Samaritan woman is from a nearby town, a Samaritan town known as Sychar, and she's coming to get water at a well. She's going to the water source for the community to get water. It's high noon. It's the hottest part of the day. When you read down through the text, you discover that she's coming at the sixth hour, which is high noon. She's getting water, which was a common chore, especially for a woman. But that was typically reserved for the earlier parts of the day when the sun was not so merciless. I wonder, could it be that she is used to not receiving mercy? Could it be that she went at that time because she wanted to be alone? She didn't want to be seen or be with anyone? But then she looks ahead of her, she sees the well, and unfortunately, and I am sure this is what she thought, there's a stranger at the well, a man. And he's waiting for her. And he asks something of her when she gets there. Will you give me a drink? Would you give me some water? Maybe perhaps like the rest of the men in her life, he just wants something. Now likely it was his Galilean accent that gave him away, but this man was not just any man. This man was a sworn enemy. His people looked down on her type of person as trash, as unequal, as suspicious, as less than human. That's how the Jews looked at the Samaritans. And this woman even points it out. She, she points out the audacity of this whole scene. The audacity of him asking for a drink from her. Listen to her snarky response, and trust me, I think it was a snarky response. How can you ask me for a drink? And then the little parenthetical comment from the gospel writer, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's polite. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you're reading through the devotional that we're reading through, you can still get a copy maybe there. The author talks about, he's from South Africa, and he talks about how walking down the sidewalk as a person of color, if he saw a white South African coming towards him, he was required by law to step to the side of the road. Does that sound familiar? Our own history? But that's the kind of tension we have going on here. The kind of inequality, the kind of suspicion. 
But look what happens. Jesus looks past that. He looks beyond cultural expectations. He looks past deep divisions. Or maybe better yet, he looks right at them and determines something better. He even ignores the snarky response from this woman. He sees something deeper. He, he sees a need in her. He sees a longing in her. And we read these words. He said to her, if you knew who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, you know, this water that you're going to get, go ahead, you can get that water, but you know what? You're going to be thirsty again. I think I'm part camel half the time, especially when I'm preaching, because I just am always thirsty. Yeah, you can have that water. I can drink this bottle. You can draw from that well. You can have that drink, but you're going to be thirsty again. But I want you to know, I have some water that will quench your thirst for eternity. And something happens. That strikes a nerve in her. And her demeanor shifts. His demeanor has shifted. Her demeanor shifts. Sir, just hear it. Can you hear it? Can you imagine it? Sir, oh, give me this water. Isn't that what we all want to say to God? Oh, God. Oh, God, refresh. Refresh me, Lord. Oh, God, restore me, Lord. Oh, God, meet me at the point of my deepest longings. What are your deepest longings? Sir, give me some of that water. Well, then, things get messy. Life is messy. Faith can be messy, and things get messy. Because Jesus seems to suddenly on a dime turn the conversation and says, go get your husband. Tell your husband to go. Go get your husband. Tell him to come. And she says, I, I don't have a husband. You see, we enter into this place where Jesus really sees her, really sees her. He knows she is there at the wrong time of day. Something, something gives it all away to the searching eye of the Son of God. What was it? Was it shame? Was it embarrassment? Was it the pretense of hiding in plain sight at a well? Or was it devastating loss and pain? Maybe compounded grief and loneliness. Maybe it was all of these things piled up inside her soul. But typically when we think of the Samaritan woman in Christian circles, we think of one thing. But before we think she is simply an immoral woman, I'd like you to consider something. 
Women in that time did not have the power, and they could not request a divorce. And often what would happen is men would be done with their use of a woman, and they would divorce her. That's the cultural reality of that day. They would abuse their power, which is a message for us men today in this world today, especially in the church. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us that we don't abuse our power. And if any group needs to stand for that, it's the church of Jesus Christ. So what's going on? Only men could divorce. And here's another thing. In that culture, they didn't have the health advancements we have today. It was not uncommon for a woman to be widowed multiple times in a short time. So with tenderness that words alone can't capture, Jesus says, you're right, woman. The fact is, you have had five husbands And the man you now have is not your husband. You know, maybe, maybe this last man was her way of trying to satisfy the longing he had touched on. Maybe this was her way of surviving. Because you know what would happen to a woman who was divorced or a woman who was widowed? That she'd be often left to poverty and to be destitute. We don't know the circumstances here But then something happens, this conversation turns, and it suddenly turns spiritual. It's always uncomfortable, right, when when the conversation turns spiritual, right? You're on a plane, and you're reading a book about God, and someone says, what do you do for a living? Right? Well, I'm a pastor. That usually creates some conversation, Right? Or they see you reading a book about God and they say, why, why are you reading that? And maybe you've had that experience. It's always a little uncomfortable when things turn spiritual, but things turn spiritual here. The conversation turns spiritual and what happens is the shell cracks and outpours her soul and outpours her hope in God and outpours her desire to worship. And how does Jesus respond as she says, you know, I want to know where we were. Where we're told to worship over here. You Jews say worship here. And Jesus says this. He says, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. That word must there is the same word used at the very start where we began when Jesus had be in Samaria. It's the exact same word, and it describes divine necessity. Outflows her desire for a Savior. Outflows her desire for a Messiah who will make sense of life. And she says this, I know that the Messiah will explain everything to us. Verse 25. And that desire in this woman is now met for the very first time. Because for the very first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus declares, he claims to be Messiah. To this woman, who's the least likely, the mostly rejected, and the most neglected person. The last person in the disciples' universe 
who they would say the Messiah would claim his existence first. Verse 26, Jesus declared, I the one, I'm speaking to you. There's so much in this passage that's worth landing on. So much. But let's land in a couple places today. Here's the first one. We are seen by Jesus. I know we live in this world where we feel often unseen, but my friends, let me assure you, we are seen by Jesus. We need to be reminded of that in this social media, online connected world of ours where the pandemic of feeling unseen is raging. Coupled with that, the anxiety that goes with that and the, the brokenness and the strain that goes with that in life. Now remember, again, this is not a side trip by Jesus. This is not a spontaneous stop. Jesus goes this way on purpose. Now when you read the text, you know eventually the disciples show up and they're befuddled that he's with this woman. But they're about to be schooled by the master. Because early in the text, we're told that after the disciples went got food, after the woman goes back to the town, the townspeople begin to come out to Jesus And I think Jesus looks at the disciples and he looks at the direction of all these people coming out of the town and he's pointing to the people who are the least desirable in the eyes of the Christ followers. And he says this, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Looks at the disciples and says, open your eyes. I know what we do with that passage of Scripture. I know all too well what we do with it. We turn it into some kind of impetus for evangelism. And I'm not saying that's bad, but that's not what it's about. Jesus is saying, look, look at the people. This trip is scheduled in the agenda of God because he sees people for who they really are and what they really need to be. Next week, we're going to consider the hardening of our categories from John 9. So hold on to that. Sometimes that blinds us. We'll talk about that next week. But today, we watch Jesus who really sees all people, including us, for what we really are and what we really need. Jesus sees us. Now this woman, well, she is exhibit A to that truth. And she shows us the power of being seen by Jesus. That's the second little place we want to land today. The tenderness of Jesus is on full display here. The tenderness that's so deep that he's not afraid to unearth whatever resides in a soul that is restricting the flow of eternal life. Is there anything in your soul that you need God to unearth so that the flow of eternal life, the river of life, the drink from the water of life. Is there anything that's clogging that up, that's restricting God working? But there's this also this vulnerable place where the woman herself comes to an epiphany about her own parched soul. 
perhaps dried out by the shards of a soul exalted, assaulted by life's brokenness and misplaced faith. But how did that happen? How does this woman shift? Because she was seen by Jesus. And it is with the precision of a surgeon that Jesus navigates this conversation. And he begins with the most basic need. In fact, he doesn't begin with her need. He begins with his own. I'm thirsty. But notice this. He asks this unknown woman to help him. That was abominable for him to ask this of a Samaritan woman. But then he does the unthinkable. He continues a conversation with her, which is the longest conversation recorded in John, as I mentioned. He sees her. He takes her seriously. And then Jesus does this. Jesus submits to her care. This is the only place in the Gospel of John where Jesus asks for help directly from somebody. Christ does this. He sees her as a valued person. And as others said, Jesus reversed the expected balance of power. He then moves to unfolding the tension between them. He tenderly speaks to what has truncated life, leaving her a dry, parched soul. And she says, sir, give me water. He exposes to her and for her the truth of her life, a truth that's searing hot, as hot as that noonday sun. And he really sees her. He sees her as someone with deeper longings and desires. And I wonder sometimes, were her life choices made out of her feeble attempt to meet the deepest longings in her life? Were they consequences of things beyond her control? Like I mentioned, the death or the abuse of power from men? We all have those places in our lives where we're tempted to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls and our meaning and our identity, our value in ways that are not truly satisfying. And it's clear that she came to that place. But Jesus also sees her as one with God-given potential to be a worshiper, a true worshiper, and he wants to set her free for that. My friends, Jesus really sees us, and what good news that is. There's power in that. He sees our heartache. He sees our struggles. He sees the bad choices we make. He sees the hurtful attitudes we keep. He sees the words. He hears the words that we use that cut and hurt. He sees the sins we embrace. He sees the desires we have. He sees the griefs we hold, the longings we hold tightly, the griefs we feel deeply, the dreams we hope for intently. Jesus sees that. He sees the ways in which we see ourselves less than the worshiper we can be. And he sees how we allow shame and regret and heartache and disappointment and sin to blunt the relationship intended for us with God. He sees us and he wants us to know one thing. The water I will give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wow. 
And this leads to one of the most essential practices in the Christian faith and one we highlight in Lent this season. It happens when we know we are known by Jesus, when we know we are seen by Jesus. When we truly know that we are seen by Him with all of the junk of life, any of the regrets we might carry, all of the brokenness that has stolen so much from life, look what can happen. Verse 28. Then leaving the water jar. Next verse. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come! Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be Messiah? Parenthetically, if you want to understand something about evangelism in this passage, it's there. It's not come, let me try to force you into something. It's, let me tell you what God's done for me. Let me tell, where Je- tell you where Jesus meets me. Then leaving her water jar, she goes back. I know. I know it's just a water jar. That's true. That's true until it's not true. Perhaps that jar was loaded with more than water. Perhaps it represents what she carried around. Are you carrying anything around? Am I? What are you carrying around? Perhaps it represents a sense of rejection for her, a merciless existence in a life, a lostness she felt. And now she's leaving that behind. We know from the text she runs back to her hometown, leaving behind the symbol of her darkest days and gravest choices, perhaps. And she runs freely to perhaps the very community that has shunned her. There's a word for that. The word is repentance. This turning away from those things that we've allowed to define our lives without God or other than God. And before you think this is just for the person who does not attend church or hasn't prayed a prayer inviting Jesus in, remember, this is a very religious woman. And the truth is this, everyone in this room has a water jar that we need to leave with Jesus. Sometimes that water jar changes at different times and seasons of our lives. But we all have places where we set God on the sideline and we try to navigate life without him. So we all need to come alongside Jesus and sit at the well with the jar of our lives knowing this. He sees. He sees us. And he sees all of us. All of us. All that we are. And then you know what he says? He invites us to get a drink. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's aware of it all. And he says, come have some water. He invites us to give it all to him. And it was when she knew she was seen, she began to realign her life. That's a really good word to use if you want to understand what repentance means. She began a realignment of her life. A reordering of her life around Christ. A realignment around 
who he is and who, what he meant to her life. And that's one of the most essential practices of the Christian faith. This realignment, this reordering, this repentance. And when we know we have been seen and loved by Jesus, what we discover is we have a new freedom. We have a new freedom to unload the jar. So where do I need to realign my life around Jesus? Last week a friend sent me words describing the season of Lent that capture the essence of all this. They come from the Daily Audio Bible of Brian Hardin. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth thinking about. It's a season of open-handedness and open-heartedness toward God. It's to unloose the fists that we have that are clinging to our lives and things in our lives and the chaos that comes from it. We're holding on so tightly. This is a season of prying our fingers open and having open hands and open hearts. A season of repentance that says, Lord, rearrange me. Rearrange me as I move through this season and celebrate the resurrection and the new life that you've given me. And so whatever is in my hand, whatever is in my heart, nothing is off limits to you, God. I open my hands and I open my heart. Remove from me what does not belong. Reorder my life as I move toward Easter so that I celebrate and am oriented, am aligned with your will for my life. And then he says this. It's a season of repentance. To offer ourselves freely to God, to repent, to walk away, and to go in a different direction and allow our lives to come into alignment with God's word and wishes. She walked away. She went in a different direction. She allowed her life to come into alignment. And there's freedom to do this when we know that Jesus sees us. And Jesus understands us. And Jesus knows us. There's power in being seen by Jesus. When I read John chapter 4, when I read it, this is what I think. We are all the Samaritan woman. I'm the Samaritan woman. You're the Samaritan woman. We all need to be filled with living water. And we all need to dump out the old water to make room for his water. The water which we see in Scripture is his spirit. Just as her soul is tired and parched and drying out, all of us, every one of us, maybe not today, but at some point we're going to encounter the well in the merciless heat of life. Today you may, you may be just drinking the water and, or you may be here and you may be, you may be with the woman at the well and you are parched, it's high noon in your soul and it's hot and it's dry. And you're wondering where God is and when he's going to show up. Maybe that's where you are. Every one of us at some point in our lives, at different journeys in our life, Come to this place of high noon of the soul where we're parched and we're dry and we need a drink of living water. All of us 
need to cry out, Jesus, see me. And then realign my life with yours. All of us cry from within, Lord, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty. What's his response to you and me? How does he respond to us? Well, in John chapter 7, we read these words. Jesus' words. The words of Jesus. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then the Scripture says, he was speaking of the Spirit, the presence of Jesus. My friends, where do you need to be seen by Jesus today? Where is it? Where do you need his living water? Where is it that it may be parched inside? Where do you need to say, Lord, give me this water. Lord, give me a drink. Lord, give me this water of your presence, your grace, your love and your mercy in my life, your strength, your power, your forgiveness. Meet me, Lord. I'm carrying this jar, this water jar. And it's filled with some stinky water. And I just need to pour it out. I need a fresh drink. I invite you to stand with me this morning. In a moment, we're going to sing the song, Who Do You Say I Am? And as we do today, I want to invite you this morning, before we sing, ask yourself a question. Where is it today that I just felt the tapping on my heart? Where is it today that I felt a little uncomfortable? Where is it today that I found myself longing for God's touch? Wherever that is today, whatever that is, I want to invite you to offer that to God. That just may be your water jar. Where God wants to fill you with a fresh drink of his grace. So as we sing, uh, who God, what God thinks of us, that's what we're going to sing about. I want you, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you today to just open up the jar, the water jar of your soul to God. Lord, give me a drink right here. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. Mm -hmm.